Well, thanks so much to our team. Thank you for joining us as well. My name is, uh, is Pastor Dave. I'm our pastor, our lead pastor here. And, um, you know, I, when I was in grad school in Hamilton, I worked with an organization called LARSH. It's an international community with those at the center who have um, just varying levels of abilities. And so uh, there would be homes for people who maybe uh, had autism or, or varying degrees of things that are just really made life challenging. And in this organization, they were at the center. And so others of us would come alongside. There would be support workers and others like myself who was just a buddy. And uh, my goal that year, my ministry, was to learn from the person I was partnered with. I was told by my, my um, director, she said, Dave, your goal is just to learn this year from your buddy. And so one of the things that we often would practice in L'Arche was, was just eating together. And so one night I had my, uh, the person I was paired up with over for dinner. Catherine and I cooked a meal and I went and picked him up and, uh, and, and he came over and we had the slowest meal in the world. He's, I'm, I'm sure, the slowest person I've ever eaten with. And so we ate our meal. Catherine and I took our time and we finished. And then we, we watched um, my buddy eat for the next 15 minutes to finish that plate. And, uh, and we were carrying on conversation. And, and, and then at the end of it, I said, would you like some more, Kevin? He said, oh, oh yes, please, Dave. <laughs> and I remember dishing up some more. And I think he said, this is the best meal of my life. And, and, and I feel like I, I remember catching myself saying something like this in my head. This is the worst meal of my life. And um, it, it wasn't, by the way. It may have been the slowest. It was certainly one of the most memorable. And it may be one of the richest in terms of my own learning. It was revealing in me this lack of patience with the other, my inability to really pay attention and just to be attentive to another human being in such a fast-paced world that I was used to. Because you see, love is patient. That's the first word that the Apostle Paul uses when he describes the meaning of love. Love is patient, and then he goes on to say things like it's kind, it's, and, and so on. Our series that we're working on right now, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, I chose that title because to be human is to be a lover. We were created out of the love relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we were created for that relationship and for relationships with each other. That's at the center of what it means to be human. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at practices that help encourage us to be lovers. Things like times of solitude and meditating on what God has said to us through the scriptures. Ways of ordering our time according to a rhythm of life that God has given to us. Prayer, connecting with God deeply. Singing, like praising God, singing for God and actually for the sake of others as well. And now today, all of those things we're going to look at could be summed up with the word attentive to pay attention to God and others. That's what postures us so that the Spirit can begin to work and transform us. So listening, attentiveness to others, that's the first step in love. Uh, in the Jewish practice of prayer, there's something called the Shema. 
faithful Jews still pray it three times a day, like morning, noon, and night. And the Shema comes from, and it's a recitation of Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It's the first step in loving God. It's paying attention to what He said. But paying attention, man, that has its challenges, doesn't it? We live in a moment, often called an, the information age, and there is so much stimulus, so much input, that our attention is regularly divided. Now, cognition scientists have found that there is no such thing as multitasking, not, not in the way that we've often been, uh, come to think of it. Like the idea that we can focus on multiple tasks at the same time, total myth. You can't. Your brain can switch between tasks, and it can do so quite quickly, but it will always be bringing you to focus on one thing at a time. And so, to live in a distracted age means that we have basically more and more and shinier things competing for our attention, because we are going to be giving our attention to something or someone. There have been lots of studies, actually, about the shrinking attention span that has resulted from the age we live in. And, and smartphones are often uh, the focus of the blame, but maybe there are some actual bigger reasons as well. Now, I've mentioned the word disenchantment a number of times throughout this series, and that comes from a book called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher. He's also a Christian person. And what disenchantment means can be seen in the way that we describe um, the world and the galaxies as a universe instead of a cosmos. And you might be thinking, well, universe, I know what that means. Cosmos, not sure I could define that one, actually. So, universe is a way that we use to describe the material world and the galaxies in a purely material sense. We say it's beautiful in its order, but it's also, when you use the word Universe, you're talking about sort of a cold, mechanical uh, space without any objective meaning or meaning giver. Cosmos, on the other hand, is the Greek word for world. It's what we read actually in John 3.16, for God so loved the cosmos. That's the language there. It's a way to refer to the space in which we inhabit as that with God at the center of it. This is the space that God has created and loves and actually imbues with meaning and significance and vibrancy because this is not just a material world, but it's God's thing. He values it, he made it, and he is present and at work in it and through it. So thinking along the lines of universe, that's talking about purely a material thing. Cosmos, that's a world that is loved by God, valued, that God is working in. And with this in mind, I think Mike Cosper is right when he says this, perhaps attention spans have grown short because a disenchanted world fails to give us much reason to attend to anything at all. If the background of our lives is that uh, the world is empty, meaningless, and destined to be forgotten, it's hard to justify investing ourselves deeply in something, a relationship, a novel, even a movie that isn't immediately pleasant or, at the very least, distracting. 
He's saying this, like, why pay attention to a world that gives us no real reason to? The novelist, David Foster Wallace, he's not a Christian person, but he notices this and he names it. This is from his book, The Pale King. Surely something must lie behind not just music in the dull and tedious places anymore, like think of elevator music, but now actual TV in waiting rooms, in supermarkets checkouts, airport gates, SUV back seats, cell phones that attach to your head. This terror of silence with nothing diverting to do I can't think anyone really believes that today's so-called information society is just about information. Everybody knows it's about something else, way down. And it's this something else way down, a restlessness, a sensation that we are actually using these distractions around us to try to numb, to buffer ourselves against. Like, if it's all meaningless... Why wouldn't you want to be distracted from that hideous reality? And I wonder if even people who believe in God or who say we do, because our world presents this universe kind of view of things, if we can actually be pressured to take on this view, maybe not in in the way we think, but in our practices. But if we live in a cosmos and we're not just part of a universe, to quote Taylor, that invites us to actually pay attention, to even bring our sorrows and struggles and anxieties to God's healing present because actually God is here and God is at work and you can experience him here in this space. And so Christian spirituality is not the idea of somehow just rising above the pain of this, you know, in a a quasi-spiritual sense. No, Because God is actually present in and through his good world, his cosmos. The fact that in Jesus, God himself comes to live among us in a real body, this is the greatest picture of how we know that God uh, values the material world and he meets us in it. The Holy Spirit actually fills these bodies, even in our brokenness. You see, God pays attention deeply to his real physical creation and us within it. Now, there's texts in the Bible uh, that have actually come to take on almost like a cliche status. His eye is on the sparrow. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He knew me when I was being formed in my mother's womb. The problem with cliches is that they no longer disrupt our senses, but these should. Because what does it say? It says that God pays intimate attention to you. When he creates, we see these delighted, evaluative statements that he makes. It is good. It is good. It is very good. I love the way G.K. Chesterton puts it in his book, Orthodoxy. He says this, because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things to be repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. 
For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be an automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never grown tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. God delights in, pays attention to, the world he made and loves, and us within it. God delights in what he made, and God wants us to be like him. And this attentiveness is at the heart of how we love each other. That's what I was learning that day at that meal with my buddy from Larsh. In Hebrews 13.1, we read, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. At the heart of life with God, it flows out into love for each other. And love requires attentiveness. As we talked about this in staff meeting the last week, um, our new administrative uh, um, uh, (laughs) office administrator, just couldn't get the word right, pardon me, our new office administrator, Rue, she pointed out that our attentiveness in relationships, it builds intimacy and connection. And that's exactly it. Learning to pay attention to another person, giving them our full attention, that demonstrates that they matter. Giving someone our attention, it says, I see you, I notice you, I value you, and I value this moment that we're in right now. Most of us have probably been there. Like there's this conversation that One person is maybe telling their friend or their spouse or their kids, and it really matters. They're saying something like, you know, I had a really hard day at work today. And the other is scrolling on their phone. "Uh Uh-huh. They say, eyes still fixed on the screen. Did you hear what I was saying? "Uh Uh-huh. Really? (laughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, the first act in loving God is to listen. Hear, O Israel. Shema. That's what it means. Listen. Pay attention. And he says that the same is true in our love for one another. The first act of loving someone is giving them your attention. So this includes maybe putting aside some of those things that can distract us so that we can be fully present with another. I've made it a habit over the last while that if I'm sitting down to have a conversation um, with someone out for coffee or uh, in my office, I'll put my phone in my pocket so I'm not looking at it or distracted by it. It signals to the other person that I'm really there, fully present, listening to them. So how do we recover practices of attentiveness? I'm going to share just really one way today, but there are many others as well. One way is to uh, cultivate attention is by throwing a feast. Again, Mike Cosper writes, most of us don't know how to feast these days. We know how to eat, and we know how to eat far more than we need to eat. But do we know how to feast? To gather around a table, linger over a meal, 
cherish the conversations, flavors, and stories that are shared? He might be right. And if he is, there is something to be recovered as a part of our Christian practice. Now, in Luke 14, we read that one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, just pause for a second there, Sabbath. We've talked about that already. This is a time of connecting with God and actually other people. It's a time of celebrating. It's a time to look back and say, God, thank you for what you've done. It's a time of justice as well, of of longing to see the world put back in right order. So if you followed Jesus through his earthly ministry, like if you were one of his disciples that was kind of connected to him at his hip, you would inevitably be eating, feasting actually, with people every single week. You'd be doing it all the time. This is a part of what Jesus did. He connected to others to celebrate the goodness of relationship and the goodness of God. He'll also go on to say in verse 12, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, not if, but when, and in verse 13, when you give a banquet, he's talking about these meal-centered celebrations Like they're just a part of God's world. Because they are, actually. All throughout the Old Testament, God's people were told to stop work and enjoy feasts together throughout the year. To celebrate God's goodness and provision, to be present with each other, and to eat together. We'll see more about the particularities of hospitality in a moment. But first, I just want to pause over the fact of feasting to begin with, and call to mind that we need to cultivate this. Now, I'm borrowing a few sources here, but again, Mike Cosper's book uh, is, is helpful. He points out how to do feasting and how to do it well. Number one we have to see is this. The food at a table connects us to the cosmos. Food, our daily bread that we are taught by Jesus to pray for, it's a visible, tangible reminder that God is our creator and sustainer and that he's meeting our needs every day. It's a sign that we live in a cosmos, not a universe. We often just look at food in a way that's so distant from the earth and the soil that it comes out of. And there's this disconnect that can arise from that. But one element of feasting is to actually just pay attention to the fact that God provides for our needs through the earth he loves. This ought to give us a moment to pause and consider the significance of the act of eating, to give thanks for the soil and the sun and the water and the bees and the bugs, to give thanks for the farmers and the folks who work to bring the food to market, and the act of cooking, like in the old-fashioned way, and inviting others to join us in the cooking, This can help us slow down and appreciate the goodness of God in fresh ways. Number two, the table is a place of deep connection with God and with others. Over and over again, in the biblical narrative, we see that God delights to show up around a table. In fact, the highest moments of God's presence can be signaled by food and gathering. Abraham and Sarah are given the promise of a child to come at a meal. We see that the Exodus, God's uh, liberation of his people from Egypt, it centers around and celebrates 
with a meal. That was the first sense, and it was continued to be celebrated afterwards with the Passover celebrations. And Jesus, he, when he wants to tell us about the new covenant, the meaning of his death and resurrection, he does it by taking bread and wine and breaking it and then telling us to repeat that meal together. And all of it is pointing to the great banquet that is to come. And that's the third point. The table pictures the world to come, the world made right. See, the world to come, when Jesus returns to end all evil and fully and finally usher in his perfect kingdom reign, that will be marked by a great banquet. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 9. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. When we gather at a table, we are pointing to the feast of all feasts. You know, and a few weeks ago, uh, Colton mentioned in his message this question, if you only had a week left to live, what would you do? And immediately, me, I'm like, barbecue, everyone invited. This is going to be a huge celebration. That's, ex- that's where my mind went instantly. There's a feast with everyone there. So you might say, how? Like, how do we really practice this feasting together? Um, that's included in the gift book, so go download that from the webpage. But here's a few highlights. And It begins with setting ground rules, actually, for our guests, maybe to cue them up for what's to come. Like, tell your guests that this is going to be a feast, so prepare to include lots of food. There's no counting calories at this meal. That's good news for some of us, right? Yeah. Have your guests arrive early. We often, when we kind of have feasts with friends, we say, come at 4.30. Our kids can play. We actually invite our guests to often cook with us. Hey, can you chop that onion? Can you help me over here at the grill? Uh, It also means that you're not in a rush to get kids off to bed. You can maybe eat a little bit earlier. So for those of us in the stage of life with little kids, that's helpful to start early. Uh, Have your guests help with preparing the food. Again, it's about connecting. It's not about showing off. It's about attending to the relationship that forms around cutting onions and grilling meat. Some of you may feel pressure around hosting people to do everything just so or to demonstrate your hosting skills don't do it. You've got to kind of put that part aside so that you can actually be attentive to those who are there, not how you look as a result. Tell people to turn off their phones. Say this is going to be a screen-free event. It's all about undivided attention, remember? And no talk just about boring things, work or weather, unless it's a really great story. This is for sharing your lives, So maybe prime your guests that you're going to share and celebrate uh, things that excite them, things that they see God is doing, or share what's really on their hearts. Maybe light a candle when you pray or sing table grace to remind you that God is present, God is here, and linger. This is to be a meal where no one is in a rush to anywhere. Don't worry about the plates in the sink. Maybe even wash the plates together. I realize that all of this talk now of feasting and connecting, that might actually come off as just sounding depressing in this moment because we're not actually allowed to gather in this way. So I feel that too. But maybe instead of it being depressing, let's let this whet our appetite for when we can feast together again because we can. It'll happen. And here's the second focus for today. Lovers are those who are welcoming and generous. That's a part of what hospitality means. It's an openness to others. So we read 
Hebrews 13, 1, love each other. Here's verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, the English word xenophobia means the fear of the stranger. The biblical word for hospitality is philoxenia, philo, love, xenos, the stranger. So hospitality literally would break down to loving the stranger. That's what it means. We've been talking about feasting and hospitality as embodied practices, something we can actually do, but it starts with actually a heart posture of generosity of spirit and openness to others, a deep openness to those around us. For life with God is to be radically generous, not just with our finances, though it will include that, but our very lives. Paul says it like this when he writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives as well. You know, last week we celebrated both of our boys' uh, birthdays. Um, at his birthday meal, we gave Connor a gift to open. He's, now, he's our 10-year-old now. But just before he opened it, bless his heart, he said, it's actually more fun to give gifts than to get gifts. And it wasn't a complaint. He didn't even know what was in the package yet. But he was noticing that the richness in life comes from us giving to others. As Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then because Connor had just finished reading um, the first book of the Lord of the Rings series, The Fellowship of the Ring, he pointed out that the hobbits would actually give gifts to everyone in town on their birthday. And he liked that idea. So, A, this is one of those parenting moments where your heart swells to about 30 times its regular size, and, and then it shrinks down quite a bit because you realize it wasn't necessarily your parenting that led him to these conclusions. It was really a summation of the biblical story as mediated through Tolkien's novel. And then your heart swells a bit more humbly and with gratitude to God for the fact that God is working this kind of generosity piece out in your son's heart. And B... And this is what I want to focus on. The practice of feasting and hospitality and generosity, they all go hand in hand. You see, generosity, true generosity, is not done in order to get something from someone else, but for the sheer joy and delight of the giving to them. In 2 Corinthians, we, we read about how Paul is taking up a collection from various churches. He's doing it because the Christians back in Judea, around Jerusalem, they are in desperate need. They're having a hard time feeding their kids there. And so he promises when he does his missionary journey that he's going to bring a collection back to help support practical needs. And so the generosity he speaks of in this text, I think, can actually then be applied to other situations as well. So here's 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give whatever you've decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, 
having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they are freely scattered their gifts to the poor. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, pardon me. Their righteousness endures forever. Then verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, at the end of the day, Paul is rooting all of this generosity that uh, comes from us in the reality that God has been so generous first. He's talking about the fact that as we share lavishly in what God has done, um, through God's provision, others will be blessed as a result. And the implications, they include not just our finances, but our generosity with our time and our emotional energy. Our giving, in the end, is a rich celebration of God's goodness and the belief that He'll actually supply what we need. Just consider, within the secular frame, where there's no ultimate future to look forward to, it would be easy for us to just quite think quite self-centeredly, that our resources are to be used to increase our experience in this life, or to decide that we'll just enhance our family and our own tribe through it. But attentiveness to God brings out of us a rich generosity and openness even to the stranger, or especially so. So we're generous because God has been generous to us, and God wants us to become like Him. Notice too, giving begets more giving. In response to God's giving, we give. The life lived in a posture of gratitude and joy to God, it actually just spills out and then the ripples extend and push outward and God at the end of the day receives praise. So we give because he gives and he wants us to be like him. Um, a few nights ago, we were at the dinner table and, and, and Catherine said to me, I wish we could have the same kind of party that we had at our wedding and like do it again and again. And she was talking about feasting of a party where people plan to spend a good chunk of the day together, lingering over food and drink and conversation and dancing and toasts. My response was perhaps a little bit predictable and practical. Sounds awesome and expensive. (laughs) That's what I said. My first impulse was just frugality. But I needed a heart check in that. Her impulse was the right one. Feasts are awesome. It feeds our attentiveness. It deepens our love for God and for others, but it does call for radical generosity as well. So let's bring the pieces together now. In Luke 14, we see that Jesus goes to this feast at the home of a Pharisee on a Sabbath day. We find out that there's actually a lot of people at this feast. For Jesus, it says, he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. And that's why he then goes to address their lack of of genuine motive for feasting. Then he says that his guests instead should pick the seats of low standing to do away with this posturing of trying to increase their own honor. And then he gives these instructions. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, 
your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors? If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There are some really key points for us here. But I know what some and maybe most of us are thinking right now because I've thought it too. Okay, like Jesus, never have your friends over for lunch, your family? What on earth? That sounds all wrong. When we listen to it, however, in the context that Jesus is saying, it'll begin to make a little bit more sense. So with little patience, let's see this unfold. First, notice that Jesus says, when you throw a banquet, he assumes that we will be feasting and regularly. Jesus expects that hospitality will be normative for us. Just note number one. Number two, remember that Jesus has just addressed the issue of posturing, of jockeying for positions of honor. The highest value in the first century was of honor, and the worst possible thing was shame. Like, your honor was more important than your very physical life. And so the whole social world in Jesus' day was about this exchange of honor, and it had become a barrier to life on God's terms, where the whole world would be healed and brought back into wholeness. So if your goal is to prop yourself up, then the good practices of hospitality and feasting are transformed from acts of love and generosity to simply plays for good standing of making a name for yourself. And Jesus gives that a hard no. And so here's what we need to see in particular for our practice. Jesus' statements, they sound ultimate in our ears, but it's not. <laughs> to his audience, it was revealing how they were using the feast. For Jesus' audience, they had been using this meal as a way of gaining honor. And when Jesus says that they're to host those in need in our society because we, we can't pay them back, he means that on two levels. Number one, those that we invite may not be able to afford to host a banquet in return. So like the, the meal itself, you're not going to get that food back. This will be actual generosity. Because in Jesus' day, he was noticing that this was just the this for that kind of transaction. You never actually lost out on the physical meal. Number two, it's likely that the payment is not just the food, but the honor attached to the reciprocating of being invited back over again. This cultivates a sense of networking that enhances business connections and brings honors to those guests who are invited. But who's excluded? That's Jesus' point. When you look at people from a sense of like, what can I get from you? You're no longer seeing them as people. You're seeing them as a leverage to something that you really want. But attentiveness to God and how he sees the world, that will change how we see others. You won't look at a meal and the guests that you bring as a a format for you gaining honor. Instead, you'll be actually loving others. Now, theologians use this phrase, disinterested love. And it basically just means this. I'm not loving you in order for my own interests. I'm loving you just to love you. 
So true hospitality, the welcome of those for which there's no benefit that we can see, Jesus says God will bless that, and he will. And to quote Connor, who's quoting Tolkien, who's quoting Jesus, it is better to give than to receive. So what does that mean for us practically? Uh, It doesn't exclude having dinner with family or friends. That would be a misreading of the big picture, for we see that surely Jesus himself eats with friends, as well as those who are strangers. But it does include a radical openness and welcome to those who are in need of God's love, but who many, on many circumstances, maybe because of where they're at in life or the challenges they face, they're often overlooked in our society. So perhaps there's some young adults in our midst who you need to invite over to take out for lunch once we're able to do that again. Or perhaps there's someone in your office who spends most weekends alone, hiking alone, taking a walk with their dog alone. Maybe you need to reach out to that person and say, can we walk together? Perhaps it's a new couple who've moved into your neighborhood and they don't know anybody yet, looking for ways to connect with those who are otherwise disconnected. Maybe it's someone who's single and in that 60-plus crowd in our midst, the new neighbor down the street. Hospitality, again, is not showing off. It's all about welcome, and we can all do that. It's the chance to love by paying attention to the other. Another part of practicing hospitality is actually a key, fe- um, key feature in engaging in mission. See, at the center of the gospel itself is God's welcome of us. Wouldn't it make sense then that at the center of our missional endeavors that the same would be true? That we would be welcoming and inviting people into our very lives with us as well? Even those who maybe share very different beliefs at this time or have very different values than we do. And it's the sharing of a meal and sharing our lives that open opportunities to share the best news ever. Because ultimately that is just reflecting God's first loving us. Jesus himself calls us to the table, and we're going to come to the table now. Uh, The table where we take bread and cup, and we celebrate how even though we were outsiders, actually his enemies, as we're called, he opens his life and welcomes us in. Pastor Colton put it really well in a correspondence we had this week about it. He says this, Jesus leaves his home. He puts off the feast of heaven to come down and be homeless so he could open his home to us. He goes hungry and faces death so that we could be filled and filled for all of eternity. So now we come to the table, which is a pointer to the great wedding feast that is to come. And as we take it today, And this is for everybody who's trusted Jesus as their loving leader, who've trusted his forgiveness and new life. When we take this today, we are celebrating that Jesus has done it all. And we're anticipating the life to come, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So let's take it together, even as we say, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you emptied yourself. You who were rich became poor so that we might become rich through you, rich in relationship to God and forever. 
And so as we take this, Lord, we say a great thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you made it possible for us to be made new. We celebrate what you've done, and we gladly take it into ourselves. So with that, Lord, we take the bread and we take the cup and give you our praise. Amen.